In these times of contention, it's all my intention to make things plain. Calling all Democrats, calling all Democrats. Calling all Democrats, calling all Democrats. Hi, I'm Philip Lumel. Welcome to No Uncertain Terms, the official podcast of the Turn Limits Movement for the week of December 10th, 2018. Your sanctuary from partisan politics. Democrats offered change in the 2018 midterms, and Americans responded by giving them control of the U.S. House of Representatives. But are voters going to get the change they're asking for? Probably not. How could that happen if the same old senior Democrats waltz back into their leadership positions and stay there forever? A significant portion of the junior Democrats in Congress recognize this problem and are demanding term limits on committee chairs be included in the new rules package to be voted on in the House in early January. To discuss this is Nick Tombalides, Executive Director of U.S. Term Limits. Hey, Nick. Hey, Phil. So we have some movement on uh, term limits within the Democratic Party in the U.S. House. I think it's pretty interesting. We're not privy to a lot of it because this uh, negotiation goes on behind closed doors, but I'm thinking it's pretty significant. It is, and the, the debate on the table right now is whether to continue a rule that was started in the Newt Gingrich era, the mid-1990s, as kind of a reaction to the burgeoning term limits movement at the time, Newt and the Republican caucus uh, decided to impose a six-year limit on chairman of committees. Of course, term limits on committee chairmen don't necessarily mean that those members have to leave Congress after they leave no. the committee. Uh, many of them do still stick around. Some choose to retire. But there are 66 new Democrats and 44 new Republicans uh, coming into the House in 2019. That's about a 25% turnover rate. Does that mean that the career politicians in Congress feel threatened? I don't think so. No way. No, because they've basically rigged the system to make sure that they get to keep the power no matter who gets elected. These 110 new members are going to have to pay their dues for years and years before having a real bite at the apple, which is precisely why this group, it's bipartisan group, wants committee term limits. It's a diverse sure. group, a lot of younger people with newer ideas. Uh, several of these people are the first uh, African-American women to be elected from their states, the first Korean-American in Congress in 20 years. They don't want to wait for marching orders. They want to take the initiative. And that is Nancy Pelosi's dilemma right now. Because Nancy right. is 78 years old. She was first elected three years before I was born. And she wants to be speaker again. Right now, she's a few votes short. So she is expressing support for term limits to win these younger members over to her side. That's right. She said that she's sympathetic to this idea. In fact, she said she's always been sympathetic to the idea. And um, she actually has been. Back in 2007, she made a push to uh, adopt committee chair term limits within the Democratic caucus in the House. And uh, she was voted down. Um, so this is an idea that she's actually pushed for a long time. And there's a lot of support within the Democratic Party for this. You mentioned, of course, the junior members who are so far away from the levers of power that uh, without committee chairs, they're really consigned to being on the sidelines. And by the way, while they're waiting on the sidelines, collecting checks from special interests over the next decade or two until they've been deemed uh, senior enough to take these positions. Right. But there's other support within the Democratic Party for it. I mentioned Pelosi. Um, importantly, the incoming rules chairman, Jim McGovern, who's a Democrat from Massachusetts, uh, he's open to the idea. Of course, it's helpful that he's on the rules committee himself and is going to be chairing it. And um, in particular, Representative Ed Pullmutter of uh, Colorado is a holdout, one of the 20 
members of the the Democrat caucus who have vowed not to vote for Nancy Pelosi. And uh, there was a meeting between him and Pelosi the other day in which term limits was discussed. That's not in dispute. There's a rumor that there was a deal offered by Pelosi that she would come out for the term limits and push it if uh, he would give her his vote for speaker. I can't confirm that, but that's what the story is out there. And I'm, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with getting these politicians to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. If Pelosi <laughs> is going to slap term limits... the only way on, it can be done most of the time. <laughs> yeah, it's not like there's another option. But even forcing Pelosi to utter the words term limits is a positive development for our country, and maybe it'll lead to something more. I, I feel like this debate is sort of a microcosm of the, the broader movement to term limit Congress in that the newer members representing the citizens of America are all for it. But the careerist dinosaurs don't want to give up uh, their wealth and power, and that's where all the uh, backlash is coming from. I hope the irony is not lost on Nancy Pelosi there. This is a public service announcement. By now, you've heard that George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president of the United States, died on Friday, November 30th in Houston. What may not have been mentioned in the eulogies to him over the weekend is that Mr. Bush, like Presidents Barack Obama and Donald Trump who followed him, advocated that term limits be imposed on the U.S. Congress. In the presidential debates leading up to the 1992 elections, Mr. Bush was asked by a moderator if he supported the idea and what he would do to implement them. Please state your position on term limits, and if you are in favor of them, how will you get them enacted? I'd be glad to respond. Thank you. I strongly support term limits for members of the United States Congress. Uh, I believe it would return the government closer to the people, the way that Ross Perot is talking about. Congress has gotten kind of institutionalized. For 38 years, one party has controlled the House of Representatives, and the result, sorry little post office that can't, you know, can't do anything right, and a bank that uh, has more overdrafts than all the Chase Bank and Citibank put together. We've got to do something about it, and I think you get a certain arrogance, bureaucratic arrogance, if people stay there too long. And so I favor, strongly favor, term limits. And you, how to get them passed? Send us some people that'll, that'll pass the idea. And I think you will. I think the American people want it now. Every place I go, I talk about it, and I, th I think they want it done. Actually, you'd have to have some amendments to the Constitution because of the way the Constitution reads. There's so many reasons why committee chair tournaments are a good idea. We mentioned the one about the new members being able to be actually have a voice in this uh, in the new house. You know, necessarily having new faces and new ideas on these committees will be helpful. But also it'll result in a younger and more energetic uh, leadership. Um, because one interesting dichotomy in the house over the last several years is that the Republican caucus has put term limits on their committee chairs, whereas the Democrats have not. So we have sort of a, uh, a comparison. And one thing that's happened between the two parties is that there's become a large divergence in the age of their leaders. Um, in the Democratic Party, the average age of the Democratic leader is 72 years old. And in the Republican side of the House, the average age is 59. You know, for, for those of us who really care about getting a term limits amendment that would throw them not just out of the committees, but out of Congress altogether, I think the committee limits are a great first step. Let me tell you what I mean. Um, Ron DeSantis, former congressman, now governor-elect of Florida, once told me that committee power, 
is a huge reason why it is so tough to get Congress behind a term limits amendment. Think about it. You get elected and you start rising through the ranks. For the first few years, uh, you're kind of like that kid who gets picked last in dodgeball. You're constantly getting your glasses broken. You're just an <laughs> afterthought. Um, but with time, you actually start to get more popular with your peers. You get more popular with the lobbyists who then start cutting you bigger checks, and that money gets paid to the party in exchange for assignments to a prime committee. So, for example, if you were to cough up half a million bucks, they'll put you on Ways and Means, um, and that deals with tax writing, Social Security, Medicare. It's the oldest committee in the United States, and it also covers the most important issues. You have to pay half a million dollars to get on that committee. Right. Money you right. get, of course, from the very same people who benefit from the tax laws you're writing. So it's soft corruption, essentially. And DeSantis' argument was if a member of Congress sits around for 15 years waiting for that power, he's not going to let you term limit him out of office just when it's time to take over. Right. And while he's doing that waiting, he's losing his ties to his original community, and he's been accepting special interest checks the whole time. Al Hunt in the New York Times, a political commentator, you probably know him, um, he makes an argument that's similar to what DeSantis was saying, at least related to it. Um, he says that you know, longtime committee leaders become captive of the interests and the agencies they oversee. Right. So new committee chairmen are much more likely to bring fresh perspectives to the office. And, you know, sure, you lose expertise, whatever. But the rule doesn't mean that term limited congressmen have to leave Congress or they don't even have to leave the committee, by the way. They just leave that position of power chairing the committee. And also the replacement is chosen by the speaker. And presumably the speaker is, is making that choice based on people that have the experience to do a good job running that committee and not just political reasons. <laughs> uh, but of course, it's obviously going to be a mix. Yeah, sometimes um, losing that committee power also um, encourages a lot of members to resign voluntarily because right. they don't want to go and sit in the back of the room anymore. Uh, they, they were yeah. there for the power. And once that disappears, uh, they've basically outlived their usefulness. Sure. And if they're that age, retirement age, a lot of them will go. And statistically, we've seen that. In this election cycle, we had several uh, Republican House members retire, uh, more than we saw in the Democratic Party. And a good part of that reason is that several key chairmen had term limited out, and they didn't want to go back to the back of the line. Democracy can degrade into other things, even strongman rule. To avoid such degradation, we have a ready prophylactic, term limits, which hamper would-be dictators for life, including entrenched oligarchs in the legislature. Many countries illustrate the point, but take Peru, where the new head of state, Martin Vizcarra, has been combating political corruption by supporting a referendum to impose term limits and other reforms on Peru's Congress. Voters weigh in on December 9th. The congressional term limit would be a ban on consecutive terms. Peru's presidency itself is limited, too weakly in my judgment, by a ban on consecutive terms. A former president may run again after a term out of office. But at least this is much better than having no presidential term limits at all. Vizcarra got the top job early this year when his predecessor resigned because of corruption charges. The former vice president wasn't very popular at first. But Vizcarra's fight against corruption and four legislative term limits has changed things. The new guy now enjoys a 61% approval rating. 
May I offer a suggestion to our own head of state? Americans, too, are heartily sick of corrupt incumbents. We, too, would love to see congressional term limits. Instead of voicing only occasional strong support for efforts to impose them, President Trump could make it a crusade. Push for the idea as loudly and eloquently as he can, day in, day out. The future of the country is at stake. And it would boost his approval ratings. This is Common Sense. I'm Paul Jacob. For more Common Sense, go to thisiscommonsense.com. With three states already in the bag, we are excited about the prospects of passing more term limits convention resolutions in 2019. The first state to pass the resolution was Florida in 2016, a trial run for our nascent campaign to impose congressional term limits via an Article 5 convention. On the line, we have John Hallman, who is key to the Florida victory. As a professional lobbyist, he helped shepherd bills from introduction, through multiple committees, and then to the floor for a vote. But as a liberty lobbyist, as he calls himself, he's an anomaly. He only takes on clients who represent grassroots issues that benefit the general interest, like term limits, rather than special interests looking for government favors. Hey, John. Hey, Phil. Hey, how's it going? Florida was the trial run uh, for the Term Limits Convention Project. Its success led us to launch the nationwide effort, now in its second full year. Well, one thing we also have in Florida is an active volunteer network um, that we're focusing their communications, basically where you recommended. What were the mechanics of that? I mean, when you came to us and said, you know, I want you to send all the calls and emails over here, um, or I want you to try to publish a op-ed piece in this town, what were those decisions based on? Sure. When I uh, am pushing bills through the legislature, obviously it's done one committee at a time, because if I can't get through the first committee of reference, then I, you know, basically dead for the year. So I mm-hmm. uh, always focus real strong on the, on the first committee and the committee members. In, in the case of Article 5, the first committee was Ethics and Elections Committee, and my vote count showed that it was borderline, actually. Oh, I remember this. Um, yes. Yeah, you remember that? And it yep. was, there was one Republican that was just admittedly a staunch uh, opponent of Article 5. And so with the closeness of that, I, I couldn't afford to go through all the work that we went through and, and to have the first committee kill it for the session. Then. It almost did die at that committee, if I remember right. It became very close, so I was really scrambling that morning of the committee meeting. And so if I know that they're an opponent, then I need to try to, to see if I can put some grassroots pressure, and that's where you guys came in. In that particular case, before the Florida Senate Ethics and Elections Committee, I remember that it was the vice chair of the committee, John Legg. Am I right? Mm-hmm. John Legg, who yes. came out with an objection, mm-hmm. and it was a conspiracy-based objection. And um, I think it was unexpected, and we, we were going to table it. But the day was saved by... Uh, Senator Geraldine Thompson. That's right. And that, I think, was unexpected. And it also was very gratifying to us that she came out of the woodwork and saved the day with her yay vote. It would have been Uh, dead right at the beginning of the process if it wasn't for that vote. Without Senator Thompson, we would have lost that vote. And that's why, you know, that morning, um, knowing that the the, the vote was going to be close... I don't want to just talk to the Republican members. I want to talk to Democrats. I, you know, because sometimes on a close vote, uh, if you can sway a Democrat to vote for your cause, then you know that sure. that can make a difference. And and it did. I mean, so I was excited when I spoke to Senator Thompson that morning before the meeting that uh, she agreed to support it. Right. 
And uh, so that, yeah, that absolutely saved the day. So sometimes you, you get friends from places you don't expect. Right. So one lesson from this was, and that again, we're taking to other states, is that you can't just rely on the majority party. Florida has Republican houses and a Republican governor. So you think, what do you need the Democrats for? Well, Geraldine showed us what you need the Democrats for. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that activists did in the Florida effort, um, activists sent letters, calls, and emails where basically you directed them to, where our chief lobbyists would say, okay, you got to hit this guy on this committee right now because they're wavering or to thank this mm-hmm. person for taking some action, right? Um, we spoke at groups in key districts and published op-eds. Mm-hmm. We also prompted groups around the state to endorse the bill. Um, that's probably helpful in some general way. On the activist side, what do you think was the most helpful? All of the above. I never depend on any one thing working, Phil. So it's like if, I, you know, like you said, we got the, you all were able to get a lot of the Republican executive committees, each county mm-hmm. to sign on. Um, you got some other groups to endorse it. Uh, I would never like feel comfortable at any point feeling like I've done enough, you know, so mm-hmm. I, I, I would try to get everybody and anybody in any group to uh, show support and just in general grassroots calls from, you know, constituents back home is always big with legislators. When they start hearing from people that are their voters, um, that has a huge effect on them too as well. And they start feeling the pressure like, Oh boy, I, even if I don't like this, I better vote for it. So right all of that. I mean, I, I can't say that any one, one or the other was the most important thing, but cumulatively, it was very effective. Good. One thing that we try to tell activists is uh, to, you know, talk to their legislator uh, about the bill once it's been introduced. And they might have the opportunity to meet the legislator, maybe at a public meeting where they can, during the Q&A, ask them if they're supportive of the, of the bill, I guess. Or they could go up mm-hmm. uh, to the Capitol and go door to door probably with a group of fellow tournament supporters. What kind of mm-hmm. approach should they take with legislators? Now, a lot of our activists don't spend a lot of time in the Capitol. What kind of approach do you take with these guys so that they'll listen and respect what we're telling them about something that's touchy, term limits? Yeah, sure. So, well, first of all, visiting your representative, setting up an appointment in the home district before the session, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to lay some groundwork down. So if you... We should be doing this right now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you don't want to wait till, you know, two weeks before the vote and on the session. Right. Um, so when I go around giving uh, classes on grassroots activism, you know, I stress the importance that you and, and, and bring a group of people mm-hmm. uh, make an appointment with the legislator. And you don't want to be combative. Um, you know, there, there's time later if you want to uh, be more critical. But at first, you want to just establish a relationship and meet with them in their home district. And mm-hmm. they should know who you are. To be really effective as a grassroots advocate, that senator and that that representative, they should know who you are. So if you can't go to Tallahassee, which is a long drive for most people, that if you call the office, that the legislative aide knows who you are and go, oh, yes, let me put you right through the senator. Um, And that's very effective. So they got to feel some heat back home. They need to know there's a group of people that believe in term limits and uh, that that's very effective. I mean, they, again, maybe they personally don't like it, but Mm -hmm. they also understand that, you know, there's some mobilization going on back in the district. So that's, that's number one, very effective. Voters prefer head lice to the U.S. Congress. Sounds like a joke, but it's actually true. In a recent podcast, U.S. Term Limits Executive Director Nick Tumbalides and U.S. Representative Beto O'Rourke of Texas referred to Americans' ranking of Congress as somewhere in the vicinity of head lice and gonorrhea, respectively. 
congressional favorability ratings rise and fall over time, and pollsters watch these political portents closely. When we say rise and fall, we actually mean that the likability of Congress consistently hovers between a near rock bottom 9 to 20 percent, earning them a spot below America's preference for head lice. It turns out, both Tambalides and O'Rourke were referring to genuine research. In 2013, public policy polling in North Carolina was inspired by a death spiral dip in congressional popularity. Can you believe an all-time low of 9% to ask, do voters really think of members of Congress with the same disdain they have for traffic jams and colonoscopies? It turns out they don't. They prefer traffic jams and colonoscopies <laughs> to Congress by a whopping 20 percentage points. According to the PPP polling, Americans also have a higher opinion of root canals, Genghis Khan, used car salesmen, and Brussels sprouts. But Americans are a discriminating lot. They're willing to see the virtue in Congress when compared to Fidel Castro, lobbyists, meth labs, Ebola, and the Kardashians. You can find a link to the full poll results in our episode 16 program notes at www.termlimits.com podcast. This in Congress is a bipartisan sport. PPP reports that 82% of Democrats and 87% of Republicans express disfavor of Congress, which is a very similar level of support we see in both parties for term limits. Clearly, this is one issue that unites Americans regardless of political affiliation. While humorous, this survey uses state-of-the-art polling methodology and begs a serious question. If Congress is so universally disrespected, why are well over 90% of incumbents running for their own seat re-elected? The answer is that the system is rigged in favor of incumbents for the purpose of protecting them against the public's ire. The vast majority of congressional elections across the country are nominal, lopsided affairs. The automatic special interest financial support and other advantages that come with incumbency are simply overwhelming and dissuade serious goal-oriented people from running for those offices. It's a shame. Only in open seat elections does the contemporaneous thinking of voters squeak into an entrenched Congress. Even then, the newbies are far, far away from the levers of power in a seniority-based system. By the time they get a shot at a committee helm, it's too late. They have already become acculturated to the swamp. Washington, D.C. changes them before they are able to change Washington, D.C. It's no wonder voters see them in the same light as playground bullies, replacement NFL referees, and pop stars like Lindsay Lohan. For more news and commentary on term limits in our country, follow us on most social media at U.S. Term Limits. the committee limits are a great first step. So Phil, if folks want to see to it that this rule is implemented by the Democratic caucus, what can they do? How can they get involved and contact their representatives um, to ask for this to be enacted? Well, like I said, this is going on behind closed doors, but we know it's going on. So what we need to do is contact our Democratic House members. And if you're a Democrat yourself, it's going to be more effective. So what I really recommend you do is go to the U.S. Term Limits website. That's termlimits.com forward slash save house term limits, plural. So it's termlimits.com forward slash save house term limits. And go there and uh, you'll be able to put in your address and 
your representative's information will pop up. You can give them a quick message saying, hey, support committee chair term limits. This is really important. And um, they'll hear from you. It'd be fantastic if Democrats across the nation use this tool and uh, really let our representatives know that people back home are watching and we care. This is an important first step in achieving tournaments on the entire Congress. Speaking of corruption, uh, today, Sunday, December 9th, is uh, United Nations Anti-Corruption Day in which they proclaim the global campaign in order to discourage uh, corruption in various governments. United Nations, it, United Nations Anti-Corruption <laughs> Day? Is that, isn't that kind of like Vegan Porterhouse Day? <laughs> uh, yes, very much so. And I think actually the, the corruption I worried about is not so much at the UN, but in the UN member nations. Well, they correctly point out that corruption is a serious problem across the globe. There's really no country that's completely free of it. And the cost to prosperity as a result um, and loss of respect for institutions, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that this campaign has any real teeth or meaning uh, across the globe in most places, but there's one major exception that is worth pointing out, and that is in Peru today on Anti-Corruption Day. There's going to be a vote taken to add four provisions to the Constitution, one of which is term limits. If it passes, then uh, members of the Assembly are going to be limited to a single five-year term. They'll be able to sit out and run again later. But uh, we're going to see some real rotation in office in uh, Peru if the voters pass this. And believe me, the voters of Peru are angry about the level of corruption in that country. I mean, polls show that 94% of Peruvians thought that the level of corruption in their country was very high and needed to be addressed. Hence, this uh, vote today. Yeah, there, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. There are a lot of uh, global indices that measure the, the strength of a democracy, and the presence of term limits or lack thereof is usually considered a major indicator as to whether a democracy exists. When I was in Washington, D.C. last week, I actually got to speak with a member of the Mexican embassy, a gentleman by the name of Guillermo Malpica, who had just gotten done negotiating the new free trade agreement between U.S., Mexico, and Canada, the USMCA uh, trade agreement, which is uh, replacing NAFTA. And now that has to go back and be approved by uh, the Mexican legislature. I was asking Guillermo, are members of the Mexican legislature allowed to serve for life? He said no. Uh, in Mexico, they actually have a 12-year term limit on members of the upper and lower uh, assembly uh, that was passed as a, as a check on on corruption, and they have three-year terms in their lower house. So you can serve four of those. Um, so this idea of rotation in office is getting traction all over the globe, and increasingly, it's almost looking embarrassing to our democracy that we have not yet adopted it yet for Congress. Term limits for committee chairs on the Democratic side would be a breakthrough for many reasons. One, it'll lead to better governance. But it will also be a reminder for the majority of Congress members why term limits generally are a good idea. Please go to termlimits.com forward slash save house term limits and voice your support for committee chair term limits to your Democratic representative. That's termlimits.com forward slash save house term limits. Also, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to our podcast. You can use the podcast app on your iPhone or use Google Play or Stitcher on your Android device, or go straight to iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review us. Follow us on Twitter at US Term Limits. We'll be back next week. Thank you.
The revolution isn't being televised. Fortunately, you have the No Uncertain Terms podcast. I like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> yep. <laughs>